Hello and welcome to episode 160 of Blockchain Insider. My name is Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto over at Visa. How's it doing? How's it doing? How are you doing today, Kai? Look at me, I can form sentences. I am doing great. And it was fun to see you in New York. It's fun to see everyone in New York to record the episode of the CBDC podcast on stage. And now we're back and have to get back into the news. Yeah, that will be out on Fintech Insider, our sister podcast. So if you don't subscribe to that, you know, podcast client, go hit buttons. You can make it happen, people. Uh, great to have you with us. Uh, today's show is, of course, a new show. And it's been a huge month for crypto news. What month isn't? But today we're going to be covering one. The European crypto industry is now stepping up its efforts to influence EU policy after some fairly big moves. Uh, it was a big month for stablecoins after UST flipped BUSD. So that's all happening. And then Circle announced a new funding round. So let's dive into stablecoins a little bit. And then Lightning Network. Robinhood's going to be supporting Lightning Network. There's going to be some key merchants supporting it, like potentially Shopify and many, many others via a partnership with Strike. So thankfully, we have some amazing guests to dig through all of this with us. Um, Koki Histosis, founder of Twali, how are you doing today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Sai. Thanks for having me. So happy to be here. You're very, very welcome. Uh, tell the listeners who Twali is. Twali is a decentralized marketplace for non-technical experts to find freelance work in Web3. We are 500 community members. You can apply at twali.xyz. Perfect. Adi, good to have you back. Adi Benari, founder and CEO at Applied Blockchain. How are you doing? Great. Great to be back. Yeah, good to have you, sir. Um, remind everybody uh, of Applied Blockchain. Applied Blockchain is primarily a, a development shop specializing in blockchain. Uh, we've built and deployed probably over 100 blockchain applications to date. Uh, we're a team of 90 engineers. And we also have a couple of products in the pipeline as well now. It's the, the circle of life, right? You always come back to product eventually and services, it happens. It, it's taken us a while. But yeah. You get there in the end. So this week, fresh off our show all about crypto policy, we wanted to cover the European crypto industry stepping up its efforts to influence EU policy. So more than 40 crypto business leaders have asked the European Union not to require crypto firms to disclose transaction details and dial down attempts to bring to heal the rapidly growing decentralized finance platforms. The EU, like other jurisdictions across the globe, is working to quote unquote, tame the freewheeling crypto sector. Interesting. In a letter uh, seen by Reuters sent to 27 EU finance ministers on the 13th of April, crypto businesses asked policymakers to ensure their regulations did not go beyond the rules already in place under the Global Financial Action Task Force, um, VASP uh, V20 rules, which set standards for combating money laundering. Uh, so the EU has, of course, published a lot of legislations there. Uh, I'm interested, Adi, in your perspective of this, as somebody who's been watching this space develop, a lot of airtime historically for the US regulatory environment, not a lot for the European regulatory environment. Do you want to just unpack this for listeners ever so slightly? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess from our perspective, there's a balancing act between uh, the, the freedom that we get in the crypto world and obviously how DeFi has, has developed and so on. Uh, and, and the regulated world where we can't really do very much of that. Um, and, and, uh, and the US has been particularly strict, I think, and stringent in many cases uh, in, in its definitions, uh, perhaps not so much in, uh, in its actions. In the EU, I think they're trying to find a middle ground, but what I've seen so far sounds very restrictive, and it could get to the point where it just causes a lot of activity to shut down or move away from the EU 
which would be a great shame, or that it really slows down the type of activity that, that we see in crypto. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, all EU exchanges like uh, that operate in the Europe, like Coinbase and Kraken, are already subject to anti-money laundering rules. And uh, what's happened here uh, is that there is an additional bar that has been proposed. So under the fifth anti-money laundering directive, all EU exchanges were already required. So this is saying now you must hold on to any information about any transaction that you have, even if that um, transaction, the other side of the transaction, is not your customer, which is going way beyond what FATF recommends and way beyond uh, some, some of the other suggestions. Uh, Koki, do you want to give some psychology to this? Do you think that this is coming out of uh, a specific fear of crypto? Do you think it's coming out of uh, anything else? And, and how do you think about the, the overall positioning of the European Union uh, in, in all of this? Yeah, so I, I kind of think that we've seen this before, right? We've seen this before with fintech transactions in Europe in particular. Um, I think we'll remember that, what was it, during the f implementation of the fourth anti-money laundering directive, FATF determined uh, that we were going to do KYCC, which is know your customer's customer. So, and then we had to kind of boil it back, right? We had to like kind of be like, hey, that probably doesn't add up. Like we are already doing beneficial owner. We're adding extra steps here. Um, so this feels somewhat familiar in the same kind of vein. And I honestly, I, as a crypto person, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I empathize with the regulator. This is a really hard space to regulate without like destroying the integrity of privacy and the integrity of um, anonymity that crypto enables. So I imagine the psychology is somewhere around we don't know what to do, so we'll do something. Um, we see the American regulators do it all the time where they're like, I don't know. How about this? Um, which feels familiar and, and probably will get wound back. Um, it's just about making sure that as an industry, we are working with the regulator to find something sensible in the middle. From a technical perspective, there, there are some solutions that we've, we've been playing around with for years now, uh, which, which as a technologist feels as though they could help to, towards solving the problem without necessarily being so restrictive. So for example, we can prove that someone has been through a KYC process uh, in the past without revealing their details to, to, to other parties that are involved in the transaction. So that shows you that they've been through certain checks with a certain party to enter the system or, or to be part of it. Um, but it's not as prescriptive as holding on to details of people through the transactions and their transaction history. Uh, so those kind of privacy-preserving solutions, as we'd call them, uh, they're, they're, they're enabled, they're possible, they're safe uh, from, as, as, you know, from, certainly from our perspective in, in adding some level of safety, uh, which the regulator might be concerned about. Um, I don't know if they go far enough, but I don't know if the regulator's open, aware of, uh, and, and exploring some of these technology solutions. Interesting. Kai, I want to get your view as an observer from, from the US of, of this, from the from the regulator that brought you PSD2 and GDPR. Here comes the, the not the sequel, but the threequel. Um, are we just going to end up with cookie consent everywhere or could this get a lot worse? Yeah, so, so I wanted to make sure I'm understanding it correctly, but it, it seemed like the crux of the issue, it's coming down to how do you treat you know non-custodial or what some people call unhosted wallets and FATF has had guidelines around virtual asset service providers. You know, if you are a custodial wallet or exchange, you have to comply you know, with these guidelines when someone is transferring crypto from one custodial wallet to another custodial wallet. That's effectively the same thing as someone sending funds from one bank to another bank. And so you have this you know, technology neutral 
approach to AML, you know, legislation, AML guidance and, and regulation. Then when you have these new software wallets that are unhosted or non-custodial, the question is like, should they fit into these exact same rules? Should they have to you know, provide information about who's originating or receiving a transaction? And if so, how does that even work? And I think that's part of the, the question is there are just these new types of entities where they don't control the money and they're just providing software. And it's almost like asking a leather wallet manufacturer to know the names of everyone that they've sold a wallet to. And when you're paying with cash, be able to record that. And so that's where I think Adi's point around, like, to me, it's either you have regulators try and kind of force some regime to fit in these new entities into existing standards, or you have the industry working together with regulators to say, how do you solve the core problem and challenge with technology instead of just trying to, to backward, you know, fit it in in a backwards way. And also, uh, Koki, coming to this, the micro uh, sort of legislation doesn't also just talk about KYC, it talks about stable coins. I don't know if you saw um, the sort of capital requirements that will be placed on stable coin issuers. Um, but today, for example, a MakerDAO would have something like uh, a one to 2% capital reserve against its uh, its issued coins versus a, a tier one bank, which would have you know, 12 to 15%. Do you think it's sensible to to start thinking in stable coins as they are banks, especially when a lot of those coins might be backed at a bank or with some other asset? I try not to think about anything in crypto as a bank. I know that a lot of us do. I disagree with the entire premise, mostly because I believe wallets are email and coins are not currency. So like, I don't think this adds up. But sure, I can get behind this actually. Having that reserve of 12 to 15% for the banks for many years meant not fucking with client assets, which is like really, really important. So I can get behind this. I think it makes sense. It's again, it's something, right? We don't know what to do, so we're gonna do something. <laughs> and and there are so many things that aren't covered in this legislation. And of course it could still change as we say, but it was been passed by parliament. It now goes into the trilogues and much more could, could happen from here. Uh, Adi, I know um, the UK is near and dear to your heart. There's been some recent movements in the UK that said they're gonna regulate stable coins. There was announcement by the economic secretary to the treasury. They wanna be a good place to do business for the crypto industry. How do you reflect on the UK's positioning especially as you look around the world? Yeah, I, I think first of all, for me you know, on stable coins, I look at, I see two distinct types of stable coins. I see the ones that are backed by the fiat currency reserves and I see the ones that are backed by crypto or, or crypto-based assets. I think those are completely different animals and we should, we should treat them differently. So the ones that are reserved by fiat and, and those who use them know and assume that they're reserved by fiat, I don't, I don't think it's a problem that there's some kind of uh, regulatory requirement for them to have reserves at a certain level. Uh, I think that will only strengthen those propositions because they, they back into fear anyway. Then, then I think in terms of UK in particular, so I've seen we're fitting it in with existing legislation, just as, as Guy was talking about the wallets earlier uh, and e-money. So I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I assume that that makes sense on the, on the level of making them more friendly to being used as a, as, as a payment method in the UK and providing some more level of assurance behind them. Throughout all of this, I think it is important to recognize that Today, you know, there's 180 plus billion dollars of stablecoins in circulation. Over 99% of them are backed by dollars. You know, last time I checked, there's about 130 million dollars or so worth of euro-denominated stablecoins. 
And so if you're sitting in Europe, if you're sitting in the, the UK, I think there's a fundamental question you have to ask is, do you want your fiat currency on chain and used within the crypto economy? And then through that lens with your policy and your approaches, what are what impact will it have on making it easier or harder for companies to bring that on chain and for consumers and businesses to use it? And I think there's a real risk if you're in a world where it doesn't exist. That could be a problem. Well, we'll come to that in a second because the next story, which is linked to this, Terra's UST flipping over the Binance to become the third largest stablecoin. So yes, Terra uh, and its algorithmic stablecoin UST has become the third largest stablecoin in the market. It is a US dollar stablecoin that launched in September 2020. Uh, its minting mechanism requires a user to burn a reserve asset such as Luna, one of, again, one of the top 20 assets in, in the crypto space. Um, and according to CoinGecko, the total market cap surged 15% over the past 30 days to sit at roughly 17.5 billion at the time of writing. And that would compare with USDC at around 50 billion and USDT tether at around 80 billion. God, this space is confusing and it's all I do. Um, so there you go. All right. So catching up, we were talking about the importance of people really understanding uh, what's backing these things. And Adi, you were talking about um, algorithmic stable coins and, and some of the questions that kind of sit underneath that. Yeah, so Terra is, uh, is, is an example of an algorithmic stablecoin, and it actually ha has quite a complex structure behind it, which backs into um, a product called Earn on the Terra platform, which gives away a 20% yield in, in, in DeFi. Uh, it's roughly 20%, which is huge, which attracts huge volumes into the platform. And this then helps to back the, uh, the, the USDT reserve. And it's really, I, I look at it as, a, as an outsider, as a marketing exercise. So a lot of the funds that were raised uh, by, by Terra in the first place are being used in order to attract people to the platform by paying huge interest rates, um, which is then providing reserve or backing for this USDT token, uh, which can then be managed as being uh, pegged to the dollar. And it's also linked to staking. So there is also staking on other platforms, which is also used to stabilize the, the, the coin. So there's a whole lot of things going on here, uh, which all together create uh, a stable coin. As, uh, and, but I think it all depends on this 20% interest rate or this very high interest rate, attracting enough people and maintaining enough people on the platform. It looks very different to something that's held uh, at a bank or pegged one-to-one -one, like um, the BUSD is and like USDC and indeed Tether claims to be, which is uh, held in cash or cash equivalents, T-bills at a registered depository or tier one uh, bank institution. So I can go have a bunch of dollars and give you these tokens, confident in the idea that the dollars are sitting there, or I can attract all of these deposits that for this for this stable yield um, for this return, and hope that that helps me hold the peg, which is a different way way of doing it. Um, Koki, what are your thoughts as as you look at this meteoric rise? Yeah, I always wonder when I look at stuff like this on stable coins, what people are actually using stable coins for, because I know what I use them for, and maybe I'm. I'm usually an edge case, like almost always I've found in, in banking and in fintech and crypto, I've always been the edge case. But I, I use stable coins to cross chain cheaply um, and to send money to others uh, kind of on chain, which would be like when I make startup investments. So I always wonder, like, what are people doing with them? I think in, <laughs> in this case, it, it is important when you just look at like metrics 
you know, the story here is, you know, the circulating supply, the amount of UST in existence crosses BUSD, but there's another metric that is the on-chain transaction volume. Uh, and so I think you also have to look at, you could have a lot of demand for people to create this because there's an incentive mechanism and staking and yield, but they might just be creating it just to create it and earn yield. They're not actually using it as a payment method where other stable coins you know, may be used more often. And so it's important to look at those, you know, those different metrics and compare them. And I think the broader question that I have here is like, it is clear there is demand for dollar denominated assets that run on a blockchain. And the question is, you know, how do you create those and what are they backed by? And I think most mainstream consumers, businesses would prefer, you know, fiat pegged assets like a USDC that, you know, they have, you know, some confidence that there is actually fiat and a bank account backing it. But if you're not able to get access to USDC or if USDC isn't able to, you know, create a stablecoin, it's not that no stablecoins are going to exist. It's that there'll be these increasingly exotic, complex, you know, financial mechanisms by which these decentralized algorithmic stablecoins emerge. And there's just a different level of risk. And I think that's black swan risk. What if the collateral tanks? And this is a real space in DeFi today of algorithmic stablecoins. There are tens of billions of dollars in circulation. And so I think every policymaker should keep that in mind of, you know, would you rather have a stablecoin that has some regime by which it can be audited and governed and you know, backed by assets at a bank? Or would you rather have massive experimentation? And we're getting both today. I think we'll see one or the other, you know, going mainstream depending upon the regulatory environment. I think stablecoins to the up to this point are mainly used by people to move in and out of crypto in terms of managing price and risk and trades and so on. But uh, from our perspective, uh, we deal a lot with real world assets and real world assets being tokenized. Um, and so the real the real reason to, to to tokenize assets is the efficiencies that you get in the blockchain. The fact that you can have smart contract assets act as escrow when you've got NFTs being traded and being paid for and so on. The fact that you can have DeFi swaps and uh, loans and so on, and it all runs very efficiently and autonomously and so on. In the use cases that we work with, we see real world assets and we see payment for those. And the payment wants to be in, a, in, in USDC. It wants to be in a, in, in a fiat token. Because those are businesses and those are people that, for the product they're using, they don't necessarily want to be exposed to crypto price fluctuations. Right? It's much easier for them to just transact in the token in which their business is already, is, is already running. They want that confidence without question, Adi. Uh, but, but I think there are many ways to achieve that confidence, as, as Kai was sort of outlining. It is interesting as you look at the algorithmic stablecoins, they do look an awful lot like banks because they are using a return rate, a savings rate, a deposit rate to attract a, a set of deposits against which they are then printing or creating value that then is, is held at a stable asset, otherwise known as dollars, which doesn't look a million miles off of what a, what a, a traditional incumbent bank would do. And so the, these sorts of things and the capital ratios start to make a ton of sense. And you, you could potentially have a regime in which a more algorithmic stablecoin works. But I do uh, buy the idea that we should resist the temptation 
to think that we've reinvented the laws of financial physics because we've got a new technology. Um, and actually, we've seen banking crises. We've seen the, the rules of economics play out over many different technologies over many centuries. Um, and it's Luca Prosperi, one of the writers from, from MakerDAO and one of the core contributors, that has written at length about you know, how do you think about being a central bank for the internet and how do you abstract that over the, the existing financial system. But then that just raw efficiency of a thing that looks and feels like a dollar, except it's programmable, as you were saying, Addy. I can make it, if somebody pays for my NFT, then I send them money, but if the NFT gets used, I also get a royalty. That programmable piece is really, really nice. But it's also permissionless. It's a, it's a dollar bit of software that anybody can write code with without necessarily knowing who the issuer of that dollar bit of software was. I don't have to have a, a direct one-to-one -one relationship with Circle or Paxos or Binance or anybody to write software that can interact with, with those tokens. And that's hugely exciting, which unlocks the third thing, which is composability. So they're programmable, permissionless, and now they're composable. I can take this US dollar thing payment rail and I can connect it to NFTs or games or, or any other experience. So PPC is a little bit different when you come to, to stable coins, PPC and Web3. That's a, a, a weird, weird one. Anything else on stablecoins before we close out? If not, we're going to get to the to the ad break. I think we're going right back into stablecoins after this. So take the break. We're, we're coming back in. All right. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back for the second half of the show. We're going to continue talking about stablecoins now with Circle announcing a $400 million funding round. And so Circle is the issuer of USDC, uh, announced it entered into an agreement uh, for $400 million round with investments from BlackRock and Fidelity Management. And in addition to its corporate strategic investment uh, and role as primary asset manager of USDC cash reserves, BlackRock has entered into a broader partnership with Circle, which includes exploring capital market applications for USDC. So what is start with, with you, Koki? You, you were talking about what you use USDC for today. What did you think about when you heard you know, BlackRock you know, is now investing in Circle and, and getting you know, closer to the, the USDC ecosystem? I actually think this makes a lot of sense and we've seen it happen a bunch of times recently. Um, we're seeing traditional financial institutions want to have exposure typically to DeFi actually. 
Um, so they're making these, they're making like later stage bets and circles pretty safe, right? Like you're not gonna, it's not an early stage kind of volatile business. It's circle, right? So this makes a ton of sense. And I'm very glad to be a BlackRock shareholder because what I definitely needed was more crypto exposure, but yeah, this, this adds up. And I think, I think we're just going to keep seeing it. We're going to see bigger, more entrenched financial players, like get into these later rounds on more established businesses. And we're going to see, uh, I think last year we saw like MetLife buy a huge amount of their balance sheet in Bitcoin. Like we're going to keep kind of seeing this interplay. And I'm interested to see how, how, first of all, how it functions is, does it change anything fundamentally? And secondly, do we care? <laughs> like, is this something that's going to matter ultimately? And doesn't affect, is it going to affect decentralization? Like, is it going to change the nature of how we use these tokens? I'm just, not sure. Um, but broadly speaking, I'm very in favor of TradFi waking up. <laughs> hey, hey, for it. Adi, as you think about like the capital markets use case for stablecoins, you're mentioning this earlier of like this concept of cash on a ledger. You know, if you're you know BlackRock and you manage you know, trillions of dollars of traditional assets and you want to tokenize those, you know, why don't they just create their own cash on a ledger? Like, what do you? What does this mean that now these institutions are adopting existing stablecoins instead of just trying to create their own? Yeah, I, I think the existing stablecoins—they're a little bit like the blockchains themselves. So they—they they become a standard. People know who they are, what they are. They have an idea of what the risk is behind them, depending on the type of stablecoin. You know, so they are—they they become a trusted means of exchanging themselves. So I think the fact that Circle's been in there early and established some pretty good infrastructure as well uh, around this, I think is great. As a company, we now receive half of all our revenue in the USDC right, across different blockchains. So we're a UK company, we have a, a Circle account, and, and that's how we collect uh, half, of our, half of our invoice payments. Um, and their international payments, they come in instantly. And they cost almost, they cost nothing. Depending on which blockchain you use, depending on, on how they do it, most folks are using Solana or Binance Chain or something similar, maybe even AVAX. But even on Ethereum, if somebody was going to pay the gas fee of $25, that might seem like a lot for a $1 transaction, but for a billion dollar transaction, it's actually incredibly small compared to what somebody like BlackRock is used to paying uh, when they're moving significant amounts of money around the world. And so as I look at this from a BlackRock perspective, they have been one of, if not the biggest shadow bank. So post-financial crisis, what you saw is a lot of the banks had to step away from certain types of lending or certain types of activity. And that gap was filled by what we call the buy side or the asset managers. And that buy side, one of the things they do, just as an example, is they buy loans from fintech companies. There's a, because uh, if somebody issues a loan and they're not a bank, then they have to get somebody to, who will buy that loan as a bond. And so... BlackRock steps in and goes, I will buy that from you quite happily and I'll make a return that when you make a return and the loan is repaid or, or something along those lines. Trying to do that in the US is fairly, fairly well known. There's syndicated loans. It's, it's fairly well established infrastructure. What if BlackRock wants to buy loans in Brazil? Or Nigeria and Lagos. How does it how does it get the funds there, and how does it get confidence that the funds have really gotten to where they want to when they have no no operations there? So this new payment rail can potentially start to look at debt capital markets. This very deep plumbing 
infrastructure piece that's been there for many, many years and go, actually, we could we could reinvent that. And if you're not like on the, if you're from a more of a consumer background, this sounds like complete inside baseball, but this could save billions and billions in transaction fees with banks. And, and think about the example that, that Adi gave. And there are a couple of companies already doing this. So Andreessen invested in Goldfinch that does things along these lines. Um, Credit Stop Finance is another one from folks with a capital markets background. So there's a whole bunch of folks, and there may be many others. If I didn't name your project here, I apologize. You're all lovely. I love you all. Um, But this is already starting to happen. And I think that surprises people. The future is here. It's just not necessarily evenly distributed, Kai. It seems like there's this broader shift where stablecoins started with crypto traders. Uh, and that's what, and that was really it. And then it expands to this broader set of crypto capital market participants. And as institutions come into capital markets, they then start using stable coins. And then they look at, well, institutions are in many different capital markets outside of crypto. And so how do you apply that infrastructure to other you know, asset classes? And then the last category has been stable coins coming into payments. And so we also saw you know, Stripe you know, announced they're rolling out a, a Stripe you know, payout. You know, service. Yeah, I think starting with Twitter as the the first customer, and so if you're a creator on Twitter and you're you know earning money through I don't know if it's super follows or a few of their monetization mechanisms, you can now you know have USDC pushed to your crypto wallet over Polygon as a way to get you know paid out. So Adi, your perspective on the the Stripe getting into USDC payouts and. You mentioned you're receiving invoices from customers. It sounds like they're recognizing you know, this disbursement you know, opportunity with USDC on Polygon. I think this will be huge. Um, I mean, I, I find myself talking to customers about USDC all the time. Uh, since we integrated our first NFT marketplace fully into USDC, um, I talk to people who have businesses which are not in crypto at all and have nothing to do with crypto. And I should describe how we now receive payments and how quick and painless it is. And, and, and it, to me, it feels like a no-brainer. Like, why isn't everyone using this already? Any other final thoughts on, on stablecoins? I think we're going to move on to one more major story, then we'll get to, to honorable mention. Uh, so Bitcoin may soon be accepted by McDonald's, Walmart, you know, over the Lightning Network, uh, Jack Mullers uh, says. So Jack Mullers is the founder of, of Zap and Strike. You know, and he has announced that his Lightning wallet you know, has partnered with Shopify, NCR, and Blackhawk Network. And so the idea is that you, know, you should be able to use your Strike wallet or you know, any Lightning-enabled wallet to go in and scan a QR code you know, and pay at these mainstream merchants. And so a lot of people excited about this as a, a major moment you know, for Lightning uh, Bitcoin payment adoption. Uh, Simon, let me start with you of like, What's your impression of where the Lightning Network is today? And people have been talking about it for a while. And are we going to see mainstream payments and consumers in person you know, paying with Lightning in the near future? Yeah, we've had a payments kind of show, and it was completely by accident. These were just the stories that bubbled up. But Lightning Network uh, is really a response to the criticism that Bitcoin isn't a very good payments method. It's actually incredibly slow and incredibly expensive, a bit like the... Ethereum network had been historically. And in Ethereum, we saw the solution was to build on top layer two scaling solutions. Um, But we also see the advent of stable coins and many, many other innovations. 
Lightning was a layer two or is a layer two project that is designed to make Bitcoin faster and easier to use. But also as of the last couple of weeks, Lightning Network also supports stable coins. So I can hold something that looks and feels like a dollar and I can spend it at a merchant. Now, what's really interesting about Lightning Network is it's supported by on the wallet side by the likes of Square and Robinhood. So there's a consumer adoption sort of wedge that they have on the kind of the payment side or the user side that's really, really interesting. And this is the other side of the story, um, the merchant acceptance. So who, okay, it's great that I've got this lightning wallet, but where can I actually use it? It's great to have a new technology, but ask anybody who's tried to build a payment system. It's very hard to do if nobody accepts it. And really, uh, when I first got into the payments industry uh, more than a decade ago, somebody said to me, what Visa and MasterCard sell is acceptance. That is the thing you are buying, that this card, this thing I have will be accepted more or less wherever I go and the brand and everything else and the rules are, are what, what enable that. And it feels, having seen the last few weeks, that Lightning Network has some mojo. Like, I've been quite bearish of um, Bitcoin as anything other than a really good form of sound money and an inflation hedge, generally. Personal opinion, do your own research, et cetera, et cetera, not investment advice. But this is cool. Like, Lightning Network's got some some momentum, some mojo. Adi is shaking his head, though, so we're going to come to Adi. I, I don't get it. I mean, I got into the blockchain space in 2015 when Ethereum first came out. And when I saw Ethereum, it, I thought it did everything that Bitcoin does and so much more. Why would we ever need Bitcoin again? And, and, and I'm still trying to work that out. So I, I don't understand it. You can do so much more on, on Ethereum and all these other platforms. You can have real programmable money with smart contracts and all the things we talked about in DeFi. So why go back to a platform that doesn't do all of that stuff and try to force it through, unless you're a Bitcoin maximalist yourself. Oh, Koki is smiling. I think, yeah, that's that's the right time to jump in. Yeah, so I don't believe in maximalism at all because being a maximalist in today's crypto landscape is like, oh, I, I only like real fire. I won't adopt the oven because the oven isn't as true as real fire. So I don't believe in maximalism. I think it's dumb. So. That aside, I always think it's funny when we look at Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of as our big two, like our two favorites, right? That Bitcoin's the payments one and Ethereum's the uh, the infrastructure one, but I only spend on Ethereum. I always think that's funny. Like, I don't, we're supposed to flip these. Either way, you probably couldn't pay me to spend money in Bitcoin. Like, I'm not going to spend it at McDonald's. I'm not going to spend it at Walmart. I'm not going to spend it anywhere, ever. It is, for me, I don't have a retirement account. My 45% of my net worth is in Bitcoin and that is my retirement account. Like that is what I'm doing. So I don't think I would do that. And the other thing I think is interesting is that we wouldn't do it in the traditional market either, right? Uh, like Vanguard, Charles Schwab, you, you don't make payments out of your out of your brokerage account. You just don't, that doesn't make sense. That's supposed to sit there and compound. Like how do you get compounding in Bitcoin if you're gonna spend it? I mean, good for the Lightning uh, Network and great for Strike, I guess. Sick. It's fascinating to me that like there's merchant acceptance and and it takes a lot of work and it's it's hard to do and and awesome to see continued you know, innovation there. And then there's consumer incentives and behavior change. And so if you woke up tomorrow and every single merchant in the world accepts the Lightning Network, would you individually shift the way that you pay every time? And I think personally, I'm like I could use my you know BlockFi you know credit card. And I can you know, earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin while spending in fiat on credit. 
I'm more incentivized to do that than I am to open up a wallet that I have and spend in Bitcoin. Now, I think there are some interesting things happening of you know flows where you know you're spending in fiat and it's just being converted in the back end, running over Lightning and then converted you know back for the merchant. And so it's not you have to consciously be spending in Bitcoin. But the other reaction I have to this is to me, spending at a point of sale at a merchant in most markets and in developed markets is generally a solved you know, problem. And it's not something that a lot of people have a burning urge to change the way that they do. But there are all these new use cases like micropayments. You know, when I look at Lightning, I think one of the most interesting things is the fact that I could spend one set. You know, when I set up my, my strike wallet to play around with it, I went to Pollo Feed, which is a you know website where you can feed chickens by scanning a lightning QR code and you literally pay like one sat or two sats and you see a video stream and feed comes out and the chickens walk over and they eat it. Super weird, but like that's a payment flow that my existing payment methods, it's, it's very hard to do. And I would love to see more innovation around when you have rails that have different properties, instead of trying to get people to change what already works, what else can you do that you couldn't do before? Man, I love crypto. Well, what was the URL again? Because I want to feed some chickens. <laughs> That's amazing. I think it's Pollo Feed. We're, we're going to have to double check it. I'll, I'll get you the link. Bitcoin Lightning Chicken Feeder. Let's do it. Let's stick that in the show notes for sure. You could download Strike and you could feed some chickens. And to me, that's that's one of the most interesting use cases I've seen. I'd like to see more like that that are different than paying emergency. I love that. But it's important to remember, you don't just have to use Satoshis or Sats or the, the fractions of a Bitcoin to do this in Lightning Network anymore. You can use regular stable coins and that's the, the progression. And I think there is a role for the most conservative network, the most decentralized network, the one that's slowest to change, but eventually does change. Because in a, in a spectrum of experimentation, you've got the crazy new thing on one side, you've got Bitcoin on the other side, and in the middle, you've got loads of things. But all of these loads of things create this new format war, which is we've already talked about countless different stable coins that are designed different ways. We've talked about them running on different networks. We've talked about them using different wallets and bits of software at different merchants in different countries in different regulatory environments. Starts to look a little bit like we're recreating the maze. And are we going to keep the programmable, permissionless and composable as, as we do it? So I just worry a little bit about the, the, the need for consumer behavior change, as you see. Um, as somebody who was a big fan of the contactless rollout in 2009 and also lived through, quote, chip and pin day, which is a whole uh, effort the UK government did to get people using their debit cards and using pin codes with it. Behavior change is hard, but it can be done. As somebody who's tried to use contactless in the United States of America, every point of sale system has its own opinion about what contactless is, how long you have to hold the card there, and that creates a horrible UX and user experience. So we're going to see different levels of adoption from all of these things. And uh, it's not easy. You can't change humanity because you change technology. That's a, that's a great point, Kai. So I, so I think we got to move to the honorable mention stories. So in this part of the show, we'll quickly round up on other stories for the month we didn't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So Simon, get us started. So Meta plans Zuckbook virtual coins for uh, Facebook and Instagram users. So apparently these Zuckbooks um, used by staff uh, are going to be part of a suite of products designed to reduce the platform's dependence on advertising. 
Although there is a rumor that this has a 47.5% tick rate. So let's see how that does versus OpenSea's 2.5. But that's me editorializing already. These creator coins from Meta are meant to diversify income and revitalize its user base, which is currently turning over to new rivals such as TikTok. Whilst Meta remains the dominant social media provider, its revenues only rose 30% in the last year um, as advertisers clamored to reach the 4.9 billion monthly users. So its growth is limited and most of its growth came via acquisitions. I'm not surprised that the incumbent is trying to M&A or build new innovation, um, but I was a big fan of the DM former Libra project and many of the people involved. The engineering and the ideas were not incorrect. It was just where they were building it, which was incorrect. And I suspect no matter how smart and talented these folks are, they're going to have the same problem. Um, that it's hard to the hardest thing to innovate outside of is your existing business model and your existing customer base. Uh, but I wish them well. You know, they own Oculus; they're in prime position to build uh, the Ready Player One universe. But I think it has to be a decentralized metaverse and a truly open metaverse. And I don't know if that's what they're trying to build. So. Let's see, Kai, you're up. Yeah, speaking of, of metaverse and, and metaverse fashion, Nike and Artifact take on digital fashion with first ever crypto kick sneaker. And so, you know, Artifact, which is a digital fashion and 3D creation studio, uh, which Nike acquired in December, revealed the collection of co-branded digital sneakers uh, this past week. And I think the way that they did this was absolutely fascinating and is a peek into the future of commerce, where you know they started with, they had this community that they had sold these NFT avatars you know, called Clonex, very successful you know, NFT avatar sale. Then they airdropped a mystery box you know, to everyone who had a Clonex avatar. And they didn't tell you what was in it. It was an NFT mystery box. And then they did these puzzles and quests that the community had to come together to try and unlock this box. And so the box finally got unlocked. And it turns out that if you redeem the box or open it, inside there is a Nike Dunk designed sneaker. And there's a vial that has a color palette or a design that you can use to decorate that sneaker. These have now enabled Nike to start monetizing specific styles and designs where you're opening up a mystery shoe box. If you don't like what you have, you can then resell it on an open market. So brand new aspects of digital fashion and commerce are emerging in this kind of generative programmable way that I think are gonna have real implications. And it's a fascinating you know, case study for anyone to watch. If you're familiar with loot boxes in video games, imagine if you got to paint what was inside the loot box and resell it if you didn't like it, that would mess with EA uh, quite dramatically and take that Ubisoft. Last but not least, uh, Coinbase launches a social NFT marketplace in a limited beta. So the marketplace is accessible to a small set of users um, who will be invited based on their position on its waitlist. Uh, the company is looking to take on established players like, uh, of course, OpenSea, but the decentralized alternative looks rare. Uh, there are social features like the ability to create a profile and show off collections. Um, and currently the marketplace supports Ethereum uh, and users log in via either the Coinbase wallet or MetaMask or Rainbow or many of the um, Ethereum compatible Web3 wallets that are out there. Uh, interesting, Kai, you and I have spoken in the past about how 
the social side of NFTs is such a big part of what they do. And yet OpenSea is sort of a, a trading marketplace and an ability to just see everything you've got. You can't create collections. And then there are really lovely services from many other NFT marketplaces that start to get into the social aspect. Feels like there's a gap in a market. Interesting seeing Coinbase go in this direction. I just wonder, uh, can they use their brand prowess and can they use the fact that they are the, the on-ramp for most people to, to draw uh, usage and adoption? Now, what happens to the comments section? So far, it, it was a little mean. I think I think it's, it's people have some mean comments about other people's NFTs. So we'll see where that that social feature goes. You end up in moderation hell quite easily. Um, all right. In the last segment, we want to give a shout out to the tweet of the week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. Tweet of the week. This week's tweet comes from Mason Neustrom. And Mason says several Web3 infrastructure protocols are generating substantial revenue that's that R word. We love that R word. In uh, Q1 of 2022, including Filecoin, which uh, had 9.4 million of revenue, uh, Helium, which had 14.5 million, and Arweave with $740,000. So uh, any thoughts here uh, from, from around the group on this tweet? Uh, just as a shill, in our first four weeks of existence, Twali has produced over 300K in revenue, uh, numbers I calculated on Friday. So... We love revenue for infrastructure providers, baby. Yeah, revenue. This is one of the common criticisms of this space is it's all speculation. Uh, because the Ethereum chain itself, uh, I think, did well over a billion, uh, several billion dollars of, of revenue for, for a lot of its miners uh, in the past year as well. So people forget that the infrastructure has a, a revenue line. And they don't see how, how big these protocols are as businesses. And Adi, any, any thoughts before we close out? I've always thought that the infrastructure is, has been the, the main uh, source of revenue uh, in blockchain. Um, and I think that even when you look at DeFi, you see staking uh, and staking rewards as being probably the, one of the most stable sources of, of income and yield. Uh, so I think that's a reflection of the fact people are paying fees for what's effectively outsourced infrastructure. And, and, and that's what this is. And if this infrastructure starts to get anything near the volume of AWS, then then what happens next? Uh, although, unless it's uh, Infura and it's built on AWS, uh, Amazon's probably still very, very happy. Um, all right, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Let's start with Koki. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at Koki Hasiotis. Good luck spelling that, but I'm the only one there. You'll find me. Or you can follow Twali at Twali XYZ or check us out online at Twali.xyz. Perfect. Adi? Adi Benari. I'm on LinkedIn mainly. Um, and the company's at applyblockchain.com. Not to be confused with a company that recently listed on the NASDAQ uh, called Apply Blockchain, which is a Bitcoin miner from Texas. <laughs> Might need a rebrand. Just throw it out there. <laughs> One of us will need a rebrand soon. Yeah. Uh, well, you know who to call. Uh, all right. Thank you for listening. Uh, Kai, how about you? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. As for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11FS.com. Uh, if you liked what you heard, remember to leave us a review. It helps us out so, so much. And if you want to join the conversation, find uh, 11FS on social media or search for Blockchain Insider. Until next time, bye for now.